Welcome to the Alabaster Jar, a weekly conversation where we take on current issues impacting women at the intersection of faith, theology, and ministry. We are pleased to offer Alabaster Jar as a podcast of Northern Seminary. In today's episode, our host, Dr. Lynn Kohick, is talking with Dr. Chloe Sun. Chloe is professor of Old Testament and academic dean at Logos Evangelical Seminary, and she has published books in Chinese and English, including The Ethics of Violence in the Story of Akat, Love Already But Not Yet, A Commentary on the Song of Songs, and Attempt Great Things for God, Theological Education in Diaspora. Her newest book, published by InterVarsity Press, is Conspicuous in His Absence, Studies in the Song of Songs and Esther. Thank you so much, Chloe, for joining us here in Alabaster Jar today. Thank you, Lynn, and thank you for the invitation. Thank you for having me. Yes, yes. Well, um, you and I have met before, actually in person, back in the day. That's right, right. back in the like, day, pre-COVID. <laughs> Pre-COVID, I know. And I, Lord willing, we'll get back to also being able to visit in person, but I'm so glad you're doing well. And uh, I, yeah, I love this book, Conspicuous in His Absence. The title is um, provocative, and then uh, just opening the the pages, and you begin even with this quote that has uh, prompted so much soul searching uh, among Christians. When you quote uh, Jesus's line from the cross, "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me?" and uh, although you don't develop the Gospels, you're talking more about the Song of Songs and Esther. Mm-hmm. Uh, it it raises for uh, the book itself raises that lament or that sigh that even our Lord expressed uh, in in his uh, moment of of anguish and um, and so I I thought maybe you could tell us just a little bit about what drew you to write this book or or do this study. Okay, sure. Um. I've been teaching the Old Testament and Old Testament theology for a while, and God's presence and absence has always been on my mind as I'm trying to know the God that I serve. And so as I read all the scholarship in the past about divine presence and absence, I find that scholars often focus more on divine presence And the theme of divine absence usually is being relegated um, on the margin. And in my own lived experience, I have experienced the feelings of God's absence from time to time, sometimes um, for extended length of time, sometimes just uh, for moments here and there. And so I wanted to align my faith with the revelations in the Bible where God's presence and absence are both there, not just one or the other. And so um, that's one motivation that drives me to write this book. And another um, drive would be, I love the Megiloth. Um, the Megiloth are the five books, five scrolls that have been used in the Jewish festivals. And Song of Songs and Esther are part of those two books. And these two books do not have any explicit mentioning of God's name. And as such, they provide great insight into the theme of divine absence. So that's another reason I 
one to write this book. But the bottom line is, I want to know God in his full capacity, not just his dominant um, mode of presence, but also his hiddenness, his silence, his invisibility sometimes in our lives. So I just, yeah, that's the bottom line. I, I want to know God. Oh, yes. Well, uh, I, I think for myself and Serene and for our listeners, we share that, um, that longing, as you say, to know God and as much as we can in his fullness. Absolutely. And, and you mentioned Esther and Song of Song as those two books uh, from the canon that actually don't use God's name. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about just the stories in each of those books, uh, especially the Song of Song? That can be, I, I, I say for me, that's a little bit intimidating to read that book. I'm not sure, you know, which, <laughs> which end of the stick to grab on that on mm-hmm. that one, you know, what's kind of going on there. Maybe you can help us a little bit on that. And sure. then, you know, we can dive into um, the, the main area of your thesis on God's absence. Okay. Sure. Then I think you're not the only one who feel that this book of Song of Songs is intimidating. So when I first studied Song of Songs, uh, I taught students only in the literal understanding of the book, which is describing or portraying the love between the man and the woman. And I remember when I was first teaching this book, I was back in the days I was younger than now. And most of my students, yeah, back then, were older than me, and some of them were males, and they were just looking down on their books. With, they felt embarrassed to look at my face, and as I was talking about, you know, the love between a man and a woman. But as I studied this book more and more, I um, I find out that if the Song of Songs is in the Bible, it is also a part of God's word to his people. And so if we just read the Song of Songs as um, love between a man and a woman, then what about those people who are single, um, those who are divorced, those who are widowers, and then not to mention, you know, LGBTQ, uh, that community. And so I then um, realized this book should also be uh, read allegorically so that all the people of God can relate to it. So if we read it allegorically, then it's it has a broader application. It will be the relationship between believers and God, or believers and the Messiah. Or from the New Testament perspective, it would be the application um, of how Christ loves the church. And so the Song of Songs, um, I see it as both literally and allegorically. And that way, it can apply to the whole range of people. That's really good. Yes. Yeah, that's so helpful. Um, let's see. I have a lot to say about the Song of Songs. Um, let's just say that um, when I first studied this book, I felt like I, I dived into an ocean and I sank deeper and deeper, wasn't able to swimming back up. Because this book is so rich and it has over 2,000 years of interpretive history. And there are all kinds of ways to read it Um, from the Jewish perspective, from the Christian perspective, from the perspective of the early church fathers, and from the Chinese perspective too. 
And so eventually, um, with the help of the Holy Spirit, I was able to swim in this ocean, able to survive, and then um, able to see lights out of the ocean. And so what I see in Song of Songs is that it is an echo to the rest of the Hebrew Bible, the rest of the Old Testament. It has the imagery of the Garden of Eden. It is a counter voice to the books in the prophets because in the book of prophets, it portrays God loves Israel, but Israel um, betrays God and loves other gods. But then in the Song of Songs, if we read it allegorically uh, in the Old Testament context, it is a response to God that the woman embodies Israel and she's responding to God and saying that I'm yearning for you too. That is beautiful. Yes, yeah, that, um, that I've never thought of that, but it, it, it just makes so much sense. And you're right, it, it, um, it offers another uh, perspective on um, how, how Israel in the Old Testament relates to the God who is always calling and mm-hmm. wooing and loving. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the canonical reading of Song of Songs brings a lot of insight into the place, the function of this book within the Old Testament. It Absolutely. Yeah. I, I love the canonical reading. Yes, yes, absolutely. And the um and then the book of Esther, you also uh use that. Both the books, of course, don't mention God's name, but tell mm-hmm. us how you, if you just want to summarize your reading of Esther before we dive into, you know, how, how we understand God better in both, from both of okay. these books. Yeah, I think most Christians would, uh, would be familiar with the storyline of the book of Esther. Um, Esther was an orphan, um, Jewish, and she first hid her Jewish identity, and then later on she revealed it. For such a time as this, she... Um, was courageous enough to risk her own life, and then she averted um, the genocide of her own Jewish race. And in this book, there was no any hint of the presence of God. Well, maybe we can see it from the coincidence or the dramatic reversal of the book, but then um, there is no like obvious religious element, such as there's no prayer offered to God, and there is no narrator's voice saying that, oh, God is behind all this, or God is with Esther, or God is with Mordecai, as, as in um, God was with Joseph, or God was with Moses. There's nothing like that. And so in that sense, um, this book opens up the space for the reader to contemplate what is God, is God even there in the book of Esther? And if, if he's there, what, why is he hidden? And what is the degree of his involvement or activity in the human race? And does it mean that God is doing the same thing in our lives as well in our present history? So um, the book of Esther even um, brings in this absence of God front and center. Oh, yes, yes. In fact, there's this great line at the end of your book 
um, where, and I just had to write it down. I just loved this uh, statement. The absence of God forces us to redefine his presence. And I'll mm -hmm. say that again. I just love it. The absence of God forces us to redefine his presence. Can you talk just a little bit about or unpack that, mm -hmm. that for us? Uh, sure. Often than not, we tend to think of God's presence and absence in a dichotomy. God is either here or he is not. But then we forget that if he is God, he can be present and absent at the same time. And in that sense, God's presence can be sensed through his absence. And a lot of times throughout the Bible, um, for example, in the Lament Psalms, in the book of Job, we can see that it is in God's absence that these people, they seek God the most. And I'm yes. sure, yeah, in my own lives as well. For example, uh, before this podcast, I have to pray that, you know, God has to be with me and so I won't stumble and I won't say anything that would... Um, be damaging to people's faith, things like that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, and for all of us, I think that um, that wanting for God to always be present, it, I mean, what, what you have just said is, is kind of paradoxical, isn't it? That God mm -hmm. can be both present and absent. And, and I can't. In fact, you, you talk a lot about how, you know, as a, as a human, like I, I exist in time and space, mm -hmm. and neither of those can find God. Yes. They, they don't define or confine yes. God. Yeah. So talk just a little bit more about this paradox. Okay. Well, on God's side, he can choose to be present, to be visible to people or not. He has that freedom. And so um, when we talk about divine absence, it's more on the human level how we feel about God's presence. It doesn't mean that when we feel that he's not there, that he's not there. It's not the same thing. And so God's presence can be sensed through his creation, nature. And that's the, the message of Song of Songs uh, because the human lover, the couple um, in the Song of Songs, they, their love setting is in the garden. And the garden is like the, the Garden of Eden where God's presence is there, even though God is not visibly there. And then in the in the book of Esther, even though God's name is there, uh, is not there, but then through human responsibility, when human beings are using the wisdom that God has given them, they acted upon the, their God-given wisdom. And then they're doing something good uh, for the goodness of their people or wellness of their people. Then God's presence is there in human responsibility. And so I guess when we think about God's presence and absence, we should widen our perspective. There are different ways to sense and to perceive God's presence in history, in this world, in our lives, more than just God verbally speaking or present visibly. Yes, and uh, I was, I was just thinking about the. You bring out these paradoxes so well, and I, you mention about how he can be present 
in our minds as we remember when he was present or we uh, at another time in the past and long for that mm -hmm. again. Um, right. Yeah, so that that there's even our longing for mm -hmm. God is a form of of his presence as we feel an absence. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Exactly. So uh, canonically, we see that out of the 66 books in the Bible, uh, uh, let me just focus on the Old Testament. There are 39 books in the Old Testament. Only two books do not have the name of God, Song of Songs and Esther. And, and so two and 37, you can see the proportion there. And so even if we don't think God is present in Esther or in Song of Songs, he is present elsewhere in other books. And because of that, we can look back to the past and then we can look forward to the future because God is in the past, in the future. He may not be in the present, but he's yes. always there. Yes, yes. And so the presence, absence, peace, um, sometimes I've, and you mentioned this, uh, God feels hidden um, or silent. And you you boldly state um, in, in your introduction, you know, that, that there are experiences that people uh, have had of God's absence or silence, like in the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned the Nanking ma Massacre, which mm -hmm. um, was perpetrated by the Japanese on uh, China and Nanking, the capital, what was it, 37, 1937? Mm -hmm. um, uh Rohingya um, genocide, mm -hmm. um, very recent, and even like the tsunami in 2004, mm -hmm. where over 200,000, I think, uh, the death, I mean, it's just a, a number mm -hmm. I can't even wrap my mind around. Right. Um, that feels maybe like God is silent somehow. Right. Um, gone, not not even absent, but just like gone. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you feel that your book and your studies on this can help us process mm -hmm. the, the reality of that sort of suffering? Right. Well, if we look back to the human history, um, there were dark times. Um, and then people in those times, they experience the absence of God in a real way. And there is no um, simple answers to address that. So uh, I I'm not God, and I cannot answer all the questions about human suffering. Um, I can only say that it's, it's, it's a mystery. When we expect God to act justly, to prevent some disasters from happening, and he didn't, uh, we would have questions and doubts about God's goodness and presence. Um, I, I don't have any easy answers for that. I, I can just acknowledge that human suffering happened. Um, I, I want to see God as a God who suffered with people um, because um, he is willing to send his son, you know, to die for all of us. And for that alone, um, we can see God's love and his sacrifice to the humankind. But I, I really don't have easy answers to the big question about 
human suffering and um, and uh, divine silence in those times. What I can think about is um, is the cross uh, when Jesus said, "You know, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me?" And Jesus even experienced the abandonment of God. And what about us? And also at that time when Jesus experienced um, divine abandoning, it is also at the time that God's will has been fulfilled. Do you see the the, the dichotomy? Not dichotomy. The the mysterious nature of who God is uh, in the death of His Son. That's that's beautifully put, Chloe. That that really is. And and your earlier statements about God's presence being there, even as we see it as an absence, but mm-hmm. God can be both. I think bringing out that paradox, and of course, Jesus's own um, death, that through death you become victorious, is mm-hmm. a paradox, and right. um, that that silence can happen even as God speaks. Mm-hmm. So God speaks from the cross in a mm-hmm. in a time when there's silence. I mean, it just I think that's what uh, what was so moving to me about uh, reading your your book is that it make it it can sound maybe like it's complicated, but really you you lay it out in a way that allows us to live in a mystery. I like the that word that you're using that there really is God is not us. He's not mm-hmm. bound by space and time. Right. And you want to really bring that out. And, yes. And uh, allow his full character to inform, mm-hmm. yeah, to inform us. Yeah, Lynn, I, I just want to say that I really appreciate you for uh, reading the book and for seeing what I'm trying to do there and for understanding it and for appreciating it. Yeah. So well, thank I, you. Thank you for that. Sure. You know, I'm going to pop in here um, also because, Chloe, as you were talking um something that you said stood out to me and that you just acknowledging that we don't always have all the answers, that there mm-hmm. is a mysterious nature to um, this topic. And mm-hmm. I'm just thinking about my own personal experiences, which aren't unique um, of, of losing a loved one, of experiencing grief or pain in my life. And when I think back to some of those seasons, um, I remember people often don't know what to say mm-hmm. when they encounter someone who is dealing with loss or grief. And I've certainly um, felt that way as well of, of wrestling with how to sit with someone in their pain um, and the grief that they might be experiencing if they feel that God is far from them or that God has abandoned them. And I just wonder um, what you might say to someone who finds themselves in that kind of position of wanting to comfort someone who's experiencing loss or grief, how can we be more sensitive or more um, even emotionally intelligent <laughs> in mm-hmm. how to have those conversations, even when we don't feel like we have all the answers? Right. Thank you, Serene, for your comment and question. Um, I, I preach at different churches, and um, one of the common experience that I've encountered um, after preaching is that people would come up and ask me about the, the same question from women. Like they, they've lost their their baby. They, they just went through a miscarriage and they're really not sure if 
if if God even cares. So in those times, um, I usually respond like this. I said, I don't know the answer. You know, why God took away your babies or your, your loved ones. But what I do know is that God understands how you feel because God lost his only child. And then I gave them a hug. That, that's, that's, that's what I can do. Yeah, I think that's uh, even just with what you were sharing about um, a God who suffered with us as Jesus suffered on the cross. There's something very powerful about knowing that God isn't so far removed that God can't understand or empathize with suffering that we experience. So, yeah, thank mm-hmm. you for sharing that. Thank you. Yeah, and uh, yes, that that is so wise. Um, I sometimes it it's even worse when someone tries to explain God for God, mm-hmm. <laughs> the right. of God, and say, "Oh, isn't that great?" Well, you know, the death of a of a child or teenager is like, "Well, God has another angel now," or something, and you just mm-hmm. think, "Ah, if God right. wanted another angel, he could have just made one." <laughs> Didn't need to take. <laughs> my my uh my child mm-hmm. so you know some resting in the mystery of god mm-hmm. and in the love of god and then uh, chloe as you also mentioned seeing god in his beautiful creation mm-hmm. i i i feel myself in in my own growing up within the church in the protestant church there was a there's a reluctance sometimes to see the evidence of god in nature because it doesn't seem sanctified enough Mm. You know, but the, but the a beautiful sunrise or, um, the, the chirping of cicadas at night or mm-hmm. just all of those things can be seen, um, as as just a, a hug from God through His creation to us. And I'm glad that you brought that you brought that up. Is that that's something I miss a lot. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I really love love nature. Um, before I became a Christian. I, I didn't know God, and I could not see God from His creation. But after I became a Christian, um, yeah, I can see God in grass, <laughs> in the gardens, in the park, and in flowers. I, by the way, I just bought a, a plant, or maybe it's a tree. It's, it's called the plumeria. It's okay. like Hawaiian. It's really beautiful. And they have white, um, yellow flowers, and pink and red. I, I bought the white one. And that reminds me of beauty of God. And sometimes beauty comforts, brings comfort to our lives and help, helps us to think of God um, in an aesthetic way. Oh, absolutely. Yes. I, I'm afraid that the plant you described, it sounds too exotic to survive in <laughs> Chicago. So, oh, okay. Yeah, it's still cold. Know, so, so I'll have to, I'll have to, th- but you know, I have to say, a sunrise over a snow-covered field is also just beautiful. That okay. color of blue, speaking of beauty, there's there's a unique color that happens uh, with the with the snow, um, and I appreciate it. Usually, looking out the window with uh, from my nice warm house with a cup of hot cocoa in my hand, I will <laughs> confess. <laughs> but uh, yeah, but um, um, there's something about creation too uh, because it. It represents order. Like for example, we we don't we don't even have to think about it. We know that the sun will rise from the east, 
it will rise no matter what, right? So that's the, the order in the creation. And when we suffer, when we are in the dark times, it's, it's kind of like chaos. We're in chaos. And so nature, creation, will remind us, you know, God is there in the midst of our chaotic lives. Yes, absolutely. You know, and you mentioned um, experiencing the love of God through others mm. and recognizing that that is a legitimate experience of, mm. of love. You know, and, and you also point out, of course, in your book that we can, we can be hurt by other people for sure. But I just appreciated that that you acknowledge that because I sometimes also think, to, uh, in my own maybe busyness or distractedness, I for, I fail to see the love that others show me during the day and receive that as mm -hmm. another one of God's gifts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's another way God um, presents Himself to show us that He cares. Right. Right. You know, as Lynn was saying, just uh, what it looks like to experience God through others, it reminded me earlier, Chloe, in, in our conversation, you talked about Song of Songs, and you mentioned even um, a Chinese perspective in reading that book and interpretation. And I wonder for those of us that don't have that lens, that didn't grow up in Chinese <laughs> culture, is there anything we could learn from the Chinese understanding of scripture, specifically these books we've been talking about today, Song of Songs and Esther, mm -hmm. or even just the topic of God's presence and absence. Is there anything that you might want to share with us that we could learn from um, the Chinese experience okay. of these texts? Yes, I have a lot to say about that. <laughs> I'll just keep it brief. Um, in the Western world, the allegorical interpretation of the Song of Songs has already died, pretty much died. Um, but then in the Chinese uh, context, it's the it, it it persists the allegor the allegorical reading of the Song of Songs as the love between God and human beings, or the love between Jesus and human beings persists in the Chinese interpretation interpretations. And what I see is in the race in, in a uh, what do you call in the race um, rally race is that how how you say it? Like with mm -hmm. four people, they use the oh yes the relay relay, the relay. Yep. yeah yep. relay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like the, what do you call this um, thing? Batons. Batons. Yeah, batons. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So in, in the re relay, they use the baton. And then I feel like the in the Western world, the allegorical interpretation has been dropped. At like the, the baton has been dropped on the ground. But then the Chinese picked it up and continues to run. <laughs> And so um, I wrote an article, actually, this is one is in Chinese, um, the, entitled mm, As Strong as Death, the persistence or the immortality of the allegorical interpretation in the Chinese context. And the reason behind it is because most of the scholars in Chinese are male pastors. Male pastors, they need to preach. They can't just do marriage counseling. And so they have to elevate um, the Song of Songs into the spiritual meaning in order to edify the whole congregation. So what I mean by the Chinese uh, reading of the Song of Songs is basically the allegorical reading, um, expressing uh, the believer's yearning for God. Mm. That's great. Thanks, Chloe. 
You're welcome. Yes, and I, I echo uh, Serene's thanks. It, this has just been so fascinating, so fascinating. I really encourage our listeners to um, pick up your book, Conspicuous in His Absence. Um, it's, even the title is poetic and paradoxical, and in all of that, comforting. Mm. Um, it, it's just a, a beautiful work, and, and you highlight and you bring to life two books of the Bible that um, often get overlooked because they are hard to understand, mm-hmm. and, and you uh, make them accessible to us. But even more, that God, who sometimes is absent, um, you, you help us to redefine his presence. And I, I just so appreciate that, Chloe. Um, Thank you so much, Lynn. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to another episode of the Alabaster Jar podcast. If you've enjoyed today's conversation with Chloe's son, we encourage you to check out her most recent book published by InterVarsity Press, Conspicuous in His Absence, Studies in the Song of Songs and Esther. You can also keep up with what Chloe's doing at her website, chloesonphd.com. And we hope that you'll join us back here next week for another episode of the Alabaster Jar.